transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the American desert. Oh, and it's madness out there in the human world. Every now and again, people get all wound up, and the next thing you know, they're marching down the streets and firebombing the cities, and wherever civilization exists, be it a shining Greco-Roman-inspired city on a hill or the paltry, low-budget version of civilization we have in the Western sprawl, all box stores and parking lots and juice franchises and abandoned malls and hollow-eyed people on the edge of the frontage road. Well, there comes a time when certain ones among us must escape to the wilderness, escape to the desert. And I am not speaking about escaping for a yoga retreat. I am talking about running for your life, running for your soul. And this is why, ultimately and always, humanity requires the desert wilderness. Yes, it's good for the yucca and the bobcat and the underground caverns filled with cold, fresh water. And once you learn to see with the eyes you were given, there is nothing more beautiful, more awe-inspiring as a wild desert panorama with its attendant strange and wonderful species. It's cloud ships crossing the horizon, the wind moving like gangs of ghost horses through the creosote. When you watch a four-inch-long scorpion purposefully skittering across the patio on an August night, that flicker of revulsion is a flashback from a film that has been running for 500 million years. When six-foot-long sea scorpions hunted the oceans and we our distant relations anyway. We were the prey. And all that's very nice, but when you're on the run, the wilderness is a sanctuary, a fair shot, a last gamble. So far, the GPS and the satellites and the social media tracking your every move has not been able to defang the wilder parts of the world. You can still get lost and die in a couple of hours, even with a bit of cell phone service. As a couple learned a week ago while taking a holiday stroll to Amboy Crater, they were found a hundred yards away from each other. But for somebody living outside the law, a Butch Cassidy or a George Washington Hey Duke at best, that wilderness isn't just a refuge for the wildlife. Speaking of Amboy, as we often do, there is a persistent legend that Charles Manson, hillbilly leader of a murder cult, lived at that desert crossroads in the Mojave. This has never been verified, and it is unlikely, but Charles Manson did take to the desert wilderness both before and after the murder spree, and it was all part of his plan. 
to start the whole world aflame and then retreat to the desert while chaos reigned. Charles Manson's plan was called Helter Skelter and it meant a nationwide race war. If whites blamed the Manson murders on blacks, Manson figured that militant black groups like the Panthers would be forced to defend themselves against suburban armies of white gun owners, and the flimsy lattice of civilization would collapse upon itself, and the whole country, the whole world would go to war against itself, against each other, white against black, right-wing militia against tolerant hippie, brother against sister, helter-skelter. When Paul McCartney played a show for 300 people at Pappy and Harriet's Roadhouse in Pioneertown last October, he didn't play Helter Skelter. After all, McCartney specifically wanted to play a real desert show in the days between his two weekend performances at Coachella's Desert Trip Festival, and Paul McCartney knows all too well that Manson and the family had holed up in the real desert to wait out Helter Skelter up in the wild desert mountains, far from the comfortable playgrounds of the rich in the Coachella Valley. For a long time after the Manson murders, Paul McCartney didn't play Helter Skelter at all. But Paul McCartney did play Helter Skelter as our unholy year of 2017 began at a private New Year's party held by the Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, Paul McCartney's singing with a Las Vegas group called The Killers. Now, Roman Abramovich is a man who advised Boris Yeltsin, and he is the man who advised Boris Yeltsin to hand over power to a rising spymaster named Vladimir Putin. Putin, it is said, treats Abramovich as a favorite son. As for Manson, he and some of his deranged family were arrested by Inyo County Sheriff's deputies, the CHP, and National Park Service Rangers at a decrepit ranch, Barker Ranch, in a gully of the Panamint Mountains. Since 1994, in the passage of the California Desert Protection Act, a part of Death Valley National Park, the suspects were accused of vandalism and stealing dune buggies. the connection with the ritual murders in Los Angeles was unknown until Manson and his followers were in custody at the Inyo County Courthouse Jail on Highway 395 in the little eastern Sierra town of Independence. Charles Manson was found hiding in the bathroom at Barker Ranch, folded up like a puppet in a cabinet under the sink. He's still alive today, in prison, still in California. Drive up Highway 99 or the I-5 through the Central Valley at night and you'll see the lights shining from that tall prison tower a little north of Bakersfield. He stays in touch with the bad people, somehow always getting a cell phone and always making and receiving calls from around the world. He particularly enjoys verbally assaulting female prison guards and as recently as this decade has been found with hacksaws and rope in his cell. Carved upon his forehead and by his own hand 
is a Nazi swastika. The removal of one evil man does not cleanse the gene pool. Evil gets through a hole in space, what William S. Burroughs called the ugly spirit, and it is always wriggling through and dropping into our world like centipedes falling from the ceiling. When conditions are right, it thrives. And ultimately, the wilderness is completely indifferent to what or whom it shelters. Even here in the Mojave wilderness, where the nearest water might be underneath a scum of algae and animal hair and dead bees within an old bathtub used for a livestock guzzler, we are constantly caressed by waves, radio waves. Radio waves act a lot like ocean waves, that's why we call them waves. Both kinds are measured by the length of the wave, the wavelength, and by the frequency of these waves. If you were standing on the shore of the Sea of Cortez down south a ways, you can see a wave might be 10 or 12 yards long, roughly 10 or 12 meters long. We measure radio waves in meters too. If you're listening to Desert Oracle Radio on your FM radio in the high desert, those radio waves are about three meters long, let's say nine feet in length. Now we count the waves as they come to shore. However many waves come per second is the frequency of the waves. On the beach, that might be a few per minute. One wave per second equals one hertz. And the way we measure these waves goes up to kilohertz, meaning thousand per second, then megahertz, meaning million per second, and onward and onward up the electromagnetic spectrum until you reach visible light waves and eventually x-rays and gamma rays. Now this particular broadcast is on the FM radio band, and FM means frequency modulation. 107.7 FM means 107.7 million hertz. The frequency of these waves is much higher than on the AM band, and these radio waves don't travel nearly as far as those on the AM dial, being limited by what's called line of sight. If you climb up Eureka Peak... In Joshua Tree National Park, you can get all the radio stations from Palm Springs and some from Los Angeles. And that's because you're up high enough for your radio to see these broadcast antennas, even if you can't see them yourself through the haze and wildfire smoke. But if you're low against a wall of desert mountains, you can't listen to FM signals coming from the other side. They won't go through the mountain. 
Now, a podcast lets you listen to any kind of radio program because instead of decoding the signals from a broadcast antenna, your phone or computer or stereo is decoding an audio file stored on an internet web server somewhere. But you still use radio to listen to a podcast. Cell phones and cell towers are radio transceivers, as are Wi-Fi routers. Radio waves are behind every mobile phone call, every downloaded app, every text message. Now, shortwave radio is AM radio, but using the frequencies that do a particular thing best. At night, shortwave transmissions bounce off the ionosphere and back to Earth. They can even bounce off oceans and large lakes or inland seas. And before the Internet, the best way to reach lots of people far away was to aim a shortwave broadcast in such a way that it would bounce around the world and wind up listenable on a cheap portable AM receiver. Maybe owned by a farmer in India working the fields or a mother carrying water to her home in a village in sub-Saharan Africa. Radio made rock and roll happen, and it brought symphonies to farmhouses in Kentucky, in the desert where tiny towns were often many hours' drive away from one another. Radio linked people and culture. Buddy Holly could drive hundreds of miles across West Texas and New Mexico only to find the kids all knew his new record pressed on vinyl just days earlier. Because it had been on the radio, it still works just fine. But because broadcast radio is free, to those who receive it, it's not as popular with global media businesses today. There's no way to track what the listener is doing. No way to charge them money to hear a song or listen to the news. You can't even tell if they walked out of the room. Well, on the shortwave bands between AM radio and the higher frequency television and FM bands, there are many odd and interesting radio signals that originate from deep within the Mojave Desert. These are known to the few who listen for such things as the Mojave Beacons, the Mojave High Frequency Beacons. They're between 4,000 and 7,000 men, and you can hear a number of curious beacons of dubious paternity. Some are solar-powered outdoor transmitters tucked here and there by hiker hobbyists who love the thrill of planting a radio beacon in the desert and listening to it from home. Some are encoded military and intelligence signals, and every now and then you catch a very strong number station in the desert. The kind you can pick up faintly in the daytime, too. Who are the people planting those transmitters? And who are the people listening for the messages? Are they out in the desert, or are they in some high-rise hotel in Las Vegas, or an apartment in Scottsdale? Waiting for a message that can't be traced by... Facebook or the FBI. The best way you can use a shortwave radio in 2017 is to take it with you out camping in the desert, not in a campground, but out in the middle of nowhere. No interference from household appliances, no competition with a million other sources of radio noise. 
And then you get up in those weird bands of shortwave and see what you can find and see what sounds very close. That's about the most fun you can have with such a thing since so many of the world's shortwave broadcasters have stopped broadcasting. Now at 4078, there's a little robot. It tells the temperature from somewhere in southwestern Arizona. At 4089, there's a baffling beacon from deep within Death Valley. Kelsey has been broadcasting for years and years. It's a dash pattern named for Kelso. It's at 4096.6. Then there's the Inyo Whooper. It's at 4097. And it sounds like a choir of goblins. Then there's 6626. There's two signals competing there. Rainy, it makes a drip-drip sound. And then there's one called Rocky. It chirps like a flying squirrel. But often, the only thing you'll hear on this band is a Russian station known as UVB-76. It's been broadcasting around the clock since 1973. And about all anyone has ever heard from this station is this buzzing sound. But on October 17th of 2016, the mysterious Russian station began broadcasting messages. Voice messages. At least 18 different voice messages. On that one day. so back I saw this pair of ravens the same ravens I think that I've seen for years and years in this one particular place they've raised several rounds of children who then grow up and move away and still come to visit and argue every now and then but day to day it's just this pair in their place You'll see them on a Joshua tree at sunrise, talking it over, watching that yellow ball of fire rising over the boulders. You'll see them in the afternoons, buzzing the coyotes or my dog, or cackling at a mountain bicyclist racing by. But until last week, I had never seen their home. They live in a small cave about a hundred feet over the valley in a wall of rock facing north so that it's shady and cooler during our long summer. 
and I got the feeling they were embarrassed that the human who so often walks these trails had finally spotted their secret lair. After all, anyone who regularly talks back to the ravens in some sad approximation of raven calls is not someone who should be able to spot their home after a decade or so of looking for it. But there it was, with all kinds of junk on the rock ledge, things they'd found, mostly sticks of some kind, but I couldn't see any real detail. A real desert homestead. Well, they rushed inside, and I'm certain hoped I wouldn't remember. And sure enough, now I can't quite spot the small shadow on the rock wall where the ravens have made their home. You know, in the wild, ravens live for several decades, 20 years, 30 years. Some ravens have lived to 45 years. And while a flock of crows is called a murder, some colorful terms for groups of ravens include an unkindness and a conspiracy. But you don't need to get clever about it. Just call them ravens. The raven is the largest and heaviest of the corvids, and the bird we call the common raven is found all over the northern hemisphere. They'll eat about anything, and they don't mind working for it. Ravens use tools like humans. They'll use sticks or wire or rocks to get to food, break shells, hide food from other animals. And once they figure out something clever, they like to teach the other ravens about the discovery, like dropping hard-shelled nuts on a road so that passing cars will break the shells for them. Ravens are masters of deception. They'll act like they're storing food in one place, but they'll casually drop it somewhere else. Genesis tells the story of Noah trusting a raven to find land after the great flood. And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro, until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Why the book of Genesis then tries to get us to believe Noah sent out a simple-minded dove to do the same thing is one of those many Bible mysteries. The Norse god Odin traveled with a pair of ravens. They were named Thought and Memory. They brought him news from around the world, which makes sense because ravens have a rich and complex language. And like human language, raven language varies from place to place. The ravens in my chunk of the desert will pronounce things differently than the ravens in Stovepipe Wells or Lee's Ferry. Raven or crow, how do you know? Well, crows caw. And ravens croak. Among all their other sounds... Now, it's said that ravens have a wedge tail. Longer tail feathers in the middle. But the easiest way to tell a raven is by the size. They're about the size of a red-tailed hawk. They're much bigger than the common American crow. One reason we are so fascinated by the raven is because the raven seems a lot like us. They care for their family and their friends, and they can also act selfishly. 
They show anger. They show amusement. They're known as a trickster. Just like us people. Sometimes on a bright winter day, you'll see something out of the corner of your eye and you'll look up and realize that there are ravens flying above you, high above you, hundreds, maybe a thousand feet over you. Dozens of them doing barrel rolls and dives. They're acrobats of the air and they'll do it just for fun. And if you ever feel like a raven is talking back to you, you're right. Ravens can mimic the human voice. Some announcements. For a limited engagement, we are presenting Desert Oracle Campfire Stories live and in person at the Ace Hotel and Swim Club in Palm Springs, California on the first Thursday of the month. We'll start at 7 p.m. and it's outside around a real campfire, but also next to a cocktail bar and a swimming pool because that's how they do it in Palm Springs, September 7th and first Thursdays in October, November, December. If you like fun, you will have fun. Free and open to all. Come on down. This program, Desert Oracle Radio, is brought to you by Desert Oracle, the pocket-sized quarterly journal of the American desert. Become a subscriber today and you'll receive four delightful issues filled with interesting stories about our arid lands. Send $25 by check or money order to Desert Oracle, P.O. Box 1735, Joshua Tree, California. You can subscribe online at DesertOracle.com. Desert Oracle is America's only quarterly that's only about the Desert Southwest. Speaking of, our autumn issue is almost ready for the printers. Just have to type it up. Meanwhile, you can pick up the summer issue, that's number 7, at BKB Ceramics in the Joshua Tree Retreat Center in Joshua Tree, or the 29 Palms Inn. And you can even find the current issue at the witchcraft stores called Sacred Well in Portland and Oakland, as well as many other fine shops in the West. Find the list of all of our retailers at DesertOracle.com. Our broadcast is also a podcast, Desert Oracle Radio. Subscribe for free on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, and other such podcast delivery systems. We're here on KCDZ 107.7 FM, Fridays at or generally around 10 p.m. from Amboy to Zizix and across the great Mojave wilderness. Be careful out there. Give a hoot and etc. 
and good night from the voice of the desert.